This is the rural and regional um, session. I'm Jen Alden, I'm on the board of the Green Institute and I'm just going to um, uh, chair this session which will have um, two speakers and a half. So we'll start off with, with Lisa and, and then with Deb um, and then we'll squeeze another five minutes and hopefully we'll have time for a very rich and productive discussion. Um, it's good to see so many people with this interest. This is something I've been banging on about for, for many, many years, being from Bendigo and um, other people will know that we've had the Victorian Country Greens Network happening for the last decade. So lots of issues. Um, so Lisa Arnold. Lisa is currently researching how political agencies being restricted and mobilised in rural communities affected by mining development. Uh, Lisa's consulted on OECD climate change projects and is a senior policy advisor for the Department of Environment. So over to you, Lisa. Thank you. Hi, thanks for coming. I'd like you to imagine a place in the centre of Queensland. There's open fields spattered with crops and cattle stretching to the horizon. There's around 350 people spread across this district. Most of them are... Uh, farmers, graziers, and there's town residents who work in industries that support them. The landholders, well, their ancestors arrived mostly around the 1900s and they managed to make a living from the land despite the challenges of drought, prickly pear weed, dense scrub, and without electricity or machinery. Many of the rituals and mythology of the early settlers of this region have been passed on from generation to generation, forging a sense of coherence and continuity in local identities. However, the semblance of continuity was violently disrupted in the mid-2000s as a result of two large-scale resource sector projects. The first was announced in 2007 by Extrata Coal. It was planning to build an open-cut coal mine in the west of the district across around 30,000 hectares of land, and it was going to be situated about two kilometres from the town. A year later, in 2008, it was announced that QGC would be starting a coal seam gas project extracting coal seam gas from land that would be adjacent to the Extrata mine. Following these announcements of projects, various outsiders arrived in this district to promote or contest the resource sector projects. Busloads of environmental activists arrived. They were protesting against the Extrata mine in public meetings and others arrived from Lock the Gate to encourage landholders to lock their gates. At the same time, mining executives and consultants were travelling around the district, setting up offices, conducting geological tests, holding meetings with landholders and setting up one-on-one -on -one exchanges to negotiate the sale of land. In my talk today, I'll, I'll briefly explore the cultural political encounters that occurred between rural, mining and green groups. And these encounters which generated peculiar types of cultural sympathy and culture clash. In my analysis, I focus on the importance of recognition and perceived misrecognition to rural political subjects in terms of how it opens up and closes down possibilities for mixing and collaboration. I base my discussion today on qualitative data which I collected in 2014 and 15 as part of my doctoral research. When thinking in abstract about interactions between small farming families and mining giants such as Extrata and QGC, it's easy to subconsciously frame these encounters as a David and Goliath battle where global seeks to dominate and dispossess the local. However, the stories told by local landholders in this district don't support such a simplistic assumptions, but tend to demonstrate an ambivalent relationship to mining groups. Their narratives expose an inner struggle between feelings of frustration, sadness, and about the, about the potential impacts of mining on farming families and farmland on the one hand, and resignation to the inevitability and legitimacy of mining development on the other. 
What seems to underpin the legitimation of mining by landholders is a widely held philosophical commitment to principles of free enterprise and the progress model. When looking through this philosophical lens, mining giants don't necessarily appear to be evil or even oppressive, but they're viewed simply as businesses that are behaving rationally and within the limits of the law. This way of thinking is articulated by one of the landholders called Jack. He says, Well, we had no choice, and for the good of the state and for the good of the country, it was something that had to happen, so we just sort of reckon we'll, we'll make the best of what we can of it. Martin says, Really, it's hypocrisy for me as a free enterprise thinker to say it was okay for my forebearers to say basically to the Aboriginals, you bugger off because what we want to do here is better. It's progress. It's development. I just think I don't have the right now to say the Australian community, no, you can't have this development. Here we see how liberal philosophical principles provide a bridge between rural and mining groups, making them recognisable and supportive of each other's contributions to society. Yet despite these philosophical connections, the exchanges between them weren't always friendly or on equal terms. Rather, a common story told by landholders is that they were threatened, intimidated, cajoled and harassed for long periods of time for, towards the sale of or access of their land. Yet even in this show of hostility, it didn't cause the miners to be represented as the enemy or necessarily fundamentally different from rural identities. Rather, they were imagined as a fierce and more powerful competitor, an adversary in business, which they simultaneously feared, respected, and even in some cases sympathised with. The following comments from landholders reveal the extent to which the boundaries between rural and mining groups were partially displaced as a result of the respectful nature of their interactions. Jenny says, A lot of people are crook on Extrata, but I found them very open. I found most of them were particularly, if you could get them on side and ask them for information, they'd tell you if they could, if they knew, if it was information they didn't want out, well, they wouldn't tell you. Simple as that. But I found them very good. In regard to CSG workers, Mark says, I feel sorry for them. I can see their side. It would be bloody tough. They welcome us with open because we're friendly, we're approachable. But as I said, business is business. It's nothing personal. I know they're doing a job. It's tough. What is interesting is that even when the participants were critical of some mining workers, their criticisms most often related to disrespectful behaviour rather than substantive issues such as unequal power, the attempt to dispossess farmers from their land and the possible destruction of land and water systems. This is demonstrated in comments made by Mark again, who encountered some CSG workers who weren't showing him respect. He says, there's just a lack of education and a lack of respect for country people. They think we're just these country bumpkins sitting on the veranda, drinking tea, waiting for them to come and offer us heaps of money. Similarly, Jane is critical of the way Extrata exposed, approached the community in its public meetings, which she says showed a lack of respect for local people. She says... I think they had the right intentions, but I just think in some ways they just didn't have the rural knowledge or affiliation to know how to approach it in a respectful way. These comments indicate a degree of tolerance for outsiders, even when they have conflicting agendas and hostile intentions, provided that they show some respect for the historical rights and interests of local people. 
The significance of respect and recognition is also demonstrated in the encounters that emerge between local landholders in particular and green groups, which included representatives of Lock the Gate, Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. These groups established a physical presence in the district when attending public meetings and some were also involved in legal action, which was jointly taken with local landholders to challenge Extrata's coal mine lease. Despite these explicit demonstrations of green solidarity with local farmers and communities, green activists were often referred to in dismissive and pejorative terms. In one interview, a landholder who was involved in the joint legal proceedings against Extrata acknowledged the amount of work that FOE did on the case but repeatedly referred to them as ratbags. His language suggests that the overlaps in their legal and political claims was not sufficient to destabilise more deeply buried boundaries between them. They can, the Greens continued to be represented as outsiders, people who were strange or unknowable and therefore to be treated with suspicion and kept at a distance. So what is the cause of this deeply buried sense of antipathy and distrust of Green groups? Some of the more common answers might include conflicting ideologies, values, views on nature, etc. However, the narratives of local inhabitants point to a more complex problem of misrecognition. The stories told by landholders reveal a common feeling of betrayal and exclusion as a result of the push towards environmentalism over recent decades. There are two events that take on particular significance in their narratives as evidence of betrayal. The first is the introduction of legislation by the Peter Beatty, the Beatty government in 2004 to control land, um, land clearing. The second was the decision by the Gillard government to temporarily ban live trade of cattle to Indonesia. These two political events are interpreted not only as a sign of political incompetence, but also a signal that the government, acting under the influence of environmental lobby groups, had turned its back on them. The wounds created by these events have not healed, but continue to inspire politics of rancour, antagonism and resentment towards environmentalists, whose engenders appear to challenge the legitimacy, authenticity and efficacy of traditional farming identities. This is made explicit by Dan and Sandy, a husband and wife, who jointly manage a cattle grazing business with their sons in the district. During an interview with them, Dan tells me a story about mining workers who ventured onto their property without asking his permission to conduct geological testing for gas. This was in the early 2000s, before Extrata coal mine lease was announced. He regrets not challenging the miners who came onto his land, but he explains that he didn't know about this kind of activity back then and he didn't know how to handle the situation. Sensing his feeling of alienation and powerlessness, I was interested to know whether there were others around, like Green Groups, who could have supported him. I asked, Did any groups come here then? Sandy, No, not really. Dan, I think the Green Groups would get shot. By who? Dan, by the people. If they come out and say you can't do this to that bit of land and you can't do this, there would be a revolt here, I can tell you. But what about the mining? Dan, if somebody came here and told me I couldn't push that tree and I couldn't touch that one and I couldn't clear a fence line down here, I don't know what would happen to them. I'd take their bloody kneecaps, I'd tell them to get to buggery because the farmers, we look after our country, we're not going to abuse it and you get these gas fellows come on and they will abuse it. There's no two ways about it. Here, Dan's antagonism towards green groups appears to stem from the belief that they misrecognise him as an abuser of the land, 
a label that denies or conceals what he sees as the truth of his identity, namely his love for the land, his knowledge and capacity to farm the land despite the lack of irrigation, and his sense of responsibility to make the land productive to feed the nation. These qualities are expressed by another landholder called Ben, who says, It's not only a lifestyle, it's not only a job, but it is part of the land. You are part of the land. You're custodians and you know you never own it, but you're just a custodian. You don't realise it when you're a kid, but that's what it is. It's just what you're part of it, the smell of it and the feel of it. Ben's use of the term custodian conveys his feeling of responsibility to care for and protect the land, which is the foundation of his primary identity as a landholder. As such, any discourse that calls into question whether unwittingly or not his ethics and his capacity to manage the land provokes a deeply negating and exclusionary experience, one that reinforces boundaries between himself and others. In light of this analysis, I suggest that the desire for recognition and the hurtful experience of misrecognition significantly affects how rural inhabitants negotiate encounters with others, although it is not the only variable that influences process of inclusion and exclusion, it appears to have been an important factor in generating sympathetic and accommodating alliances with minors while sustaining old antagonisms with green groups. I don't have an answer for how we can fix the problem of recognition or address rural identity politics, but just as a starting point, I think there are some issues that we can think about in terms of how we, I guess, how we recognise ourselves and how they see us in relation to themselves. And this is all the post-structural framework for understanding identity and moving away from these very fixed categories that we tend to rely on inadvertently and how they reinforce boundaries between us. So I guess in that sense, I'm asking to what extent... Sorry, I've got a different question here. But one I wanted to ask was to what extent do green discourses distance the rural implicitly and position it as backward, inferior or irrelevant, particularly in the heady political context of a mining venture that's threatening to displace farmers? Can we respect the history, traditions and social contributions of rural people while not replicating or being complicit with the dominant discourses that shape practices of rural identity? And how can we articulate the multiplicity of positions and lived experiences which spill over the boundaries of identity categories while not erasing shared identities that play an important role in connecting people to each other and to place? Um, thanks very much, Lisa. That's um, obviously some great food for thought, so I hope we get a chance to, um, for them both to build on each other and we can have a good discussion. Um, so Deb, um, many people won't know Deb Foskey. Um, she's a community environmental activist with roots back in East Gippsland, um, back from the 70s and 80s and then back from the 2008 to the present um, and a couple of decades in Canberra in between, studying, teaching and being politically active from 85 to 2008. So she was a Greens MLA in the ACT Legislative Assembly from 2004 to 2008. So you probably feel quite at home in this area. Okay, welcome, Deb. Well, given the shortage of time, I'll just go straight into it. Um, my paper is called A Challenge for Progressive Politics, Bridging the Rural-Urban Divide. 
And I quote from a Greens politician who describes themselves as a planetarian. My constituency is everything this side of the moon. And uh, my sort of basic sort of premise is that if the Greens are going to increase their political influence, they need to win more seats. And at least some of those seats need to be in rural and regional areas. And let's face it, if the Greens don't increase their influence, the planet is cooked. The rural-urban divide is a major barrier to extending the power of progressive political movements and parties in Australia. The discrepancy is acknowledged by most people and its existence exists and its existence is well documented. However, few people are studying it and bringing the data across issues together. Think health services, education, employment, demographic change, population diversity, public transport, political power, all those things are on ends of the spectrum depending whether it's rural or urban. That work remains to be done and I hope to do some of that in my private think tank at Cabinandra. Um, I feel uniquely placed because I've been both an urban and a rural person and engaged very, very deeply in each, each of those. Um, I'm going to quote from Tim Colbatch who looked at the census data using three electorates and this was published on Inside Story on July the 5th, if you want to check it out. The massive increase in Victoria's population in a decade is swollen by 1.14 million, or 22.3%, has swollen the average enrolment in its electorates by 15.5% since the 2010 redistribution. A third of that has gone into just five electorates, all held by Labor or the Greens four on the outer suburban fringe, and Melbourne. The census counted 136,000 people living in Aston, it's one of the electorates, 134,000 in Wannon, Western District, and 208,500 in Melbourne, which now has the biggest population of any of the 150 federal electorates. Since the 2010 redistribution, Melbourne has added another 52 1,767 people, whereas Wannon added just 8,000 and Aston 6,500. Inner Melbourne can absorb that number because many of them are students and new jobs are constantly springing up for workers. The inner city is a dynamic region. If you live there, the world around you is changing constantly and that influences your values. If you lived in a settled outer suburb or country town with little population growth, the world around you isn't changing very much, and that too influenced your values. In the three statistical regions covering one and meanwhile, the census found population growth of just 2,600 people over the past decade. By 2016, in round figures, it had 44,500 fewer children and teenagers than a decade before, and 3,200 fewer people of prime working age, about ten and a half more thousand people near or at prime age. The next census might well record more retirees than workers because few jobs are being created there and most of the young are migrating. That was why the Andrews government had to swallow its principles and agree to a new subsidy for Elcoa's Portland smelter. 
one of the area's biggest employers. See, crossover of green issues. Victoria is seen as an economic success story, but if you dig into the figures, that success is concentrated in Melbourne and particularly in Inner Melbourne. The ABS estimates that in the past three years, 95.5% of all growth in full-time jobs in the state has been in Melbourne. In net terms, only 4.5% of new full-time jobs are in the regions. In the country, six in every seven new jobs created are part-time. And that's why the kids move up and head to the city. There's a problem here, Nina. If not today, in 10 years or so, as George Megalogenis said on Saturday Extra, very conveniently, last week, <laughs> when discussing the changing face of Australia. Migration is changing that face, with Sydney influenced by Chinese migration and Melbourne by Indian. Brisbane is having its face changed by New Zealand and Ireland influence. Although he didn't say so, because he doesn't look there, rural and regional Australia will remain predominantly Anglo-Saxon. He predicted that it will be very difficult to hold together as one Australia, those areas not affected by the migration boom, with the capital cities absorbing the new skilled arrivals. No doubt Pauline is rubbing her hands with glee. Well, let's try an anecdotal, anecdotal approach in this room. This is going to be a workshop at times against us. So um, it was my hope that this workshop would be attended by city urban as well as some um, rural people. So I'm just going to test that out. <clears throat> just borrow a pen because, you know, I might use this in my research. <laughs> Put up your hand if you are a resident of rural or regional Australia. <laughs> Leave it up if, you, if you're a rural person. If you visited Capital City in the last year, apart from now at this conference. Leave it up if it was in the last three months. Leave it up if you live in a town of fewer than 3,000 people. <laughs> Leave it up if you live in a community of fewer than 100 people. <laughs> Leave it up if you have a critical mass of friends and colleagues in your locality who are interested in working with you on progressive and environmental issues. You'll put it up. <laughs> yeah, okay. Not as many craps as live in rural and regional areas, which is my experience, certainly. Okay, so put up your hand if you live in a major city, a capital city. Leave it up if you move to the city from a rural and or regional area. How long? Oh, any time. Okay, well, put it up. Again, you can put those down. If you visit a rural area in the last three months. Leave it up if you actually visited family and friends in that rural area. Leave it up if you stayed a night or put it up if you stayed a night or more. Put your hand up if you're doing more than travelling through on your way to another major city. In fact, this rural place was your destination. Um Put it up if you stopped in a rural town on the way and sat down for a meal and a drink. Put your hand up or leave it up if you had a conversation with anyone outside your travelling group. And that doesn't just mean cup of tea or cappuccino. 
Right? So, if you had a conversation with someone who lived in that place, I don't think it's very scientific. <laughs> Hands up if you're concerned about environmental issues that are located in rural and regional areas. If that's why we that's pretty much everybody. Can I ask a question, Deb? When you said originally with the rural regional people, did you have a group of people who were progressive around you? I think I misunderstood that. Oh, okay. It was so, like if you had people you could work with. Yes, in, uh, I didn't put my head up, but yes, it should have been. Yeah, well, you asked me second. Would you come? Hands up if you contemplate living in a regional town. Um, would you live on land in a rural area? Um, what would you need to make that happen? Community. Mm. What, well, just a couple, I'm going to go on in a sec because of time. But how many people would find internet access a really important factor? I know I do. It's huge. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, okay, so we'll, we'll leave, leave it at that. How many people know how many seats you need to win government in Australia? How many lower seats? Okay. If electoral politics wasn't viewed as Labor versus Liberal National, plus a few independents and minor parties on the side, but rural, regional versus urban, Australia's demography would ensure that urban Australia will always have the numbers, with 79 seats in our capital cities alone, supplemented by seats in our large regional cities. Fortunately, our divisions are not confined to rural urban lines, although that division is ever-growing. There are conservatives in the cities, as there are progressives in the country. Nor are the only marginal seats in the inner city, as the success of Nick Zenfon's party and Cathy McGowan in Mayo and Indi, respectively, shows. Not that they're particularly progressive candidates or members, but they aren't Liberal or National Party members or Labor members. And, and that's, of course, a marker of fear for those parties. And the voter can see that their responses to issues are considered and more nuanced than the patter of the major parties as they buy for the balance of power and the particular interests that they are pushing for their electorate. In Australia, coverage of rural and regional issues is usually confined to publications that are expressly geared to those markets. Nationally, the land, and in Victoria, hanging by the skin of its teeth, the Weekly Times. Few journalists have crossed that divide. Margot Kingston's the only journalist that I know who wrote for a mainstream media organisation but was thrown into the margins when the Sydney Morning Herald sacked her. She's the only author who was brave enough to look at the success of Pauline Hanson in rural and regional Australia. And if you want to come to the reference, I can come to you later. And to go beyond a tweet and an article or two in the book. Um, however, I have not, have not opening the book, I had to go to a couple of tweets in my first. <laughs> and here's what she said on the 4th of July 2016. The latest snobbery about Hanson and her voters makes me sick wrote off the rails, the Pauline Hanson trip in 1999 to help cross the two nations divide. That chance. And then on a little bit later that day, 
Instead of Green's leader saying Hanson's a racist bigot, it's his, and it's his job to expel her, how about, I look forward to discussing her views with her. The media has adopted Pauline Hanson as code for rural Australia. She is to rural Australia what Edna Everidge is to urban Australia. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> and about as accurate. Kingston suggests she reflects the views of many rural voters who would normally vote national, but proposes that we learn from her success and steer away from politically correct knee-jerk dismissals to earn favour with the smashed avocado cafe latte set. And I love all those things. <laughs> of inner city marginal electorates where Greens see the most chance of wrenching a seat from a progressive Labour candidate, as Adam Bant's re-election indicates. Such contests absorb a significant amount of pre-election spending for both parties, who needs a bigger proportion of the Greens budget. At meetings and conferences like this, where many speakers are vying for a slot, each of us convinced of the preeminent importance of our own topics and participants having to make choices, I would have expected that rural participants would be more likely to choose this one. And pleasantly surprised that there's a feminism one like. Um, indeed, at previous events I've been to, that has been the case. And uh, maybe it's because rural people like a safe place where they can talk together and share, share experiences. Mostly it's because they want people who aren't rural people to understand the issues that they face and to work with them because we are quite alone, a lot of us. However, we do want more than that. We want city-based Greens and other progressive activists to assist their progressive counterparts in rural Australia and become informed about the issues they're campaigning on. If your passion is forest, wouldn't you want to connect with environmentalists who live near the forest you care about? City Greenies will have more success if they are working with campaigners and informants on the ground. The best campaigns have a place for everyone. Uh, issue I know a lot about, in the 1980s, the Erinundra National Park was established as a result of the different parts played by locals in concerned residents of East Island, which was the group those of founder of, and the Orbos District Environment Group, and the transient Erinundra people, also known as the Nomadic Action Group, so they were they made life extremely difficult for us local greenies, but nonetheless <coughs> they played their part. A passionate scientist who brought the issue and the biodiversity values of the Erinundra and was so passionate about it, as scientists aren't meant to be, that he actually brought the natives to the Erinundra. Um, and, uh, of course, professional environment, I'm calling them professional, um, environmentalists from the Australian Conservation Foundation, the Victorian Conservation Council, the Native Forest Action Council, which existed then. And this was long before the internet, so I'm sorry, you can't Google it. It was also before the Greens Party was formed. Relationships weren't always smooth and the outcome wasn't what the locals wanted. Our campaign was to end wood chipping in East Gippsland and we wanted to develop an environmentally sustainable industry. Not, but I doubt 
if there would have been an Erinundra National Park in the early 1980s without their efforts. Of course, it did help that the newly elected ALP state government had an environmentally responsible forest policy and was prepared to honour at least part of it. If you ask an East Gippsland environmentalist now what worried them most about the future of the forest, you still hear about wood chipping, although the number of contractors and sawmills has diminished in response to the dwindling resource. But in forests where so much has already been modified by clear felling and various stages of regrowth have replaced mature multi-aged old growth forests, there are other equally worrying threats and most of them come from government policy and the attitude of the forest managers. Apparently random hazardous tree reduction has taken our government land management department into roadside verges, into reserves and national parks where their word defines what is a hazardous tree and where and when a fuel reduction burn is needed. And the course to judge a hazardous tree is available online to see if they need it. You too can become qualified in deciding what's a hazardous tree. East Gippsliders have been dismayed to see inflammatories poured into swamps and never burned wet forests to satisfy a burn target that is discarded in other forest districts. Um, I'm now aware that the hazardous tree and burning programs are a form of structural adjustment in the industry. How do you keep loggers in work when there's no longer loggers in the forest to be harvested? Because there's no market anymore. But we can get together, we can get together, national, um, urban, rural, to prevent the rollover of the regional forest agreements which made all of the above possible. If you never venture out of the cities, even if you do read your habitat and your wilderness news, you're more likely to believe what the highly paid spin doctors employed by government and industry tell you. The new sand mine planned on the Mitchell River doesn't even rate a mention in the state's daily papers. A small group of local residents is fighting these battles on your behalf. We hope that some of what you do will assist in our efforts to protect our rivers, our forests, our coastlines and our landscapes. But if you never ever go, you never ever know. <laughs> I think that what I have to say in some way meets some of the things that the other speakers have said. Now, a number of years ago, I have been interested and written about um, the need to reduce emissions because of climate change, and a number of years ago, I became aware of the large number, proportion of greenhouse emissions that come from the burping of cattle. And in the last year, I have been following moves, research moves, to develop an answer to the burping. And what I have here, I'll just tell you what's here because I don't have time to summarise it, but just to hope that some people will read it. I'm afraid I've only got four copies left. It talks about research by James Cook, you people at James Cook University in the CSIRO into um, seaweed that can, redu it can reduce uh, the burps from cattle. Now, these burps have globally for between oh, 15 
and 20% of all greenhouse emissions in the world. If we could stop that, that could, um, that could be on a par with stopping uh, cars, with stopping coal mines, and so on. But very, very little is talked about it, probably because of the sort of things that we were talking about. Anyway, what I've got here is a summary of the fact that it's just, this is all in here is from the last few months. This is current information. Uh, the James Cook University looking at the research that they're doing on this. And what they're beginning to find is that 2% of the feed of cattle in feedlots, 2% from a certain kind of seaweed, could reduce their emissions by up to 99%. So we're not talking about something trivial. I have got here a statement from the Meat and Livestock Australia, who have been working with them on this. So this is not um, greenies. This is um, this is the cattle uh, cattle themselves, the cattle growers themselves. I have got here uh, a first introductory page of an academic article on this by people from James Cook University. I have got here uh, a statement from the Victorian Farmers Federation, uh, which is called Seaweed for Cows, Methane Reduction and Market Potential, that they go together. That if you reduce the methane, uh, if you reduce the methane uh, production, the cows have more energy to build themselves to be productive. Um, and I have got uh, um, a thing from ABC News, uh, from, and this is from the 21st, this is from the 21st of April this year, which says seaweed fed cows could solve livestock industry's methane problem. What it's going to need is the development of a new industry to, uh, to grow the seaweed or to duplicate the chemical properties of this seaweed. There's only one kind of seaweed, and it's not available in large quantities, which can do. Um, so anyway, I'll stop there because uh, I wasn't on the menu for today. Um, but uh, if anybody is really interested, I have five copies of what I've just described to you. I'm sure that we'll